Welcome to episode 83 of Between the Times, a podcast of Christ Church Presbyterian in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, I'm here on the corner of Broad and King at our Christ Church offices uh, with my two uh, good friends and uh, cohorts and hosts on this uh, podcast, uh, Dr. Gabriel Williams and Mr. Michael Bauer. Good to see you guys. Good seeing you. Good to see you. Uh, my name is John Payne. I'm the pastor of Christ Church Presbyterian, and we are here uh, this morning uh, to talk about uh, a very uh, well-known commemoration that's been taking place over the last two years, uh, last year and this year, and that's the 400th anniversary of the Synod of Dort. Um, now, uh, some of our listeners might hear that and think, what in the world uh, is the Synod of Dort? Well, uh, that's what we want to uh, discuss this morning and uh, demonstrate why it's important, uh, not only that we know about the history of the Synod of Dort, but also the theology that comes out of this uh, really important uh, synod uh, in the life of the Reformed Church, uh, a synod that began in uh, November 1618 and ended in May uh, 1619, thus the, the two-year uh, celebration. Uh, but when we go to the letter of Jude uh, in Scripture, it says in uh, the third verse, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Mm -hmm. uh, brothers, uh, here we are uh, reminded that uh, because the faith has been delivered to us from the apostles, that it's not changing every year or even right. every week. Uh, we've been handed down a, a body of truth called Holy Scripture and the Gospel and so there are going to be times when uh, those, not only outside of the church, but within the church, will negotiate that truth. And so we must contend for the truth. Uh, we see this all throughout church history. Uh, Bob Godfrey, in a wonderful uh, little article in the January 2019 edition of Table Talk, uh, he, he brings this up, that throughout church history, we have people contending for the faith. He says, quote, Paul opposed the legalists. Athanasius opposed Arius. Augustine opposed Pelagius. And Martin Luther opposed Erasmus. Uh, these are a few examples of how Christians have contended for the apostolic faith in history. And then he writes, after the Reformation, one of the greatest challenges to the apostolic faith arose within the Dutch Reformed Church from a minister and professor named Jacobus Arminius, or Jacob Arminius, and also from his followers. So before we begin uh, unpacking kind of the history and background of the Synod of Dort and why it is an, uh, such an important uh, landmark confession in the life of uh, the Reformed Church, the Protestant Church, really. Uh, let's talk for a minute about this idea of contending for the faith. Uh, is this an idea that we see regularly throughout the Scriptures? But the answer is yes. And if you would just do a quick survey of the New Testament, almost all of the letters are in some way or fashion polemical, except mm -hmm. for Philemon, probably. But if you oh. think about all of, well, even now, but if you think <laughs> of all of Paul's letters, he's addressing either a very strong heretical or doctrinal controversy mm -hmm. or something related to perhaps the members of a local assembly there. Right. But probably the, the letter that most people think of in terms of being the most polemical of all of them would be Galatians. 
where Paul states in very clear language, if anyone preaches to you a gospel apart from what you have already heard, even if it was me or an angel, doesn't matter, consider that person anathema or condemned by God. Yeah, chapter 1 verse 6 says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Yeah. He's writing this to the churches in Galatia. That's right. And so when you go beyond that idea, the, the basic question comes up to all Christians is, is the, is the Christian faith, is the gospel worth fighting for? Meaning, if you consider what God has done in Christ Jesus and the fact that it was not done in a corner, it was done publicly, and the fact that it was God's providence and grace that we now have the recorded record of the works of redemption and the teachings that come from that work, the question becomes, are you willing to just simply allow it to fade into the background of history or are you willing to just simply allow teachers later on to misinterpret mm. or simply to deny what is stated? Mm. And when you go to, for instance, the letter to uh, letter of Jude, his point is that you need to earnestly contend for the faith. Meaning, the faith is this important that it is you should contend, fight for, and protect it with the zeal of fighting for something that is that important to you. Yes, and Paul says again in Galatians 1 verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. In other words, it's not our prerogative to change the gospel in every generation. That's right. Uh, which is yeah. what we see happening today, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, for instance, I drove by, I drive by a church regularly, on uh, Meeting Street, and uh, in, the, in the front of the Congregational Church there, um, infamously known as uh, one of the most liberal churches mm. in, in our area, and there's a rainbow flag uh, banner up on the fence in front of the church that says, God is still speaking. Okay, the answer to that is yes and no. Uh, yes, he's still speaking, that's true, but he's doing so through his word. Amen. His word, which does not change. <laughs> And so, but what they mean is God is still speaking. In other words, the Bible is not his last word. He is changing along with the times. That's right. uh, ladies and gentlemen, God is not changing along with the times. <laughs> uh, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. He doesn't give his word and then change his mind or change his standard of morality. Uh, and that should be a comfort to us. That's right. Uh, that, that God is God and he does not change, nor does his word or his moral standards change. Exactly right. Yeah, I mean, even the the letter First John as well is is polemical in the way that that he describes um, or, or or rails against sort of this Gnostic um, idea that or or docetic idea that that Jesus Christ only appeared to be human. He wasn't truly human, and John writes uh, strongly against that type of thinking, saying that if if we if we uh, say that Christ did not come in the flesh, then we are uh, liars. We are condemned. Mm. Um, mm. That, that, that contention um, for the faith, contending for the faith is so important to, uh, to the apostles and it, it's, it should be important to us today. And it certainly was important to those who met in the Synod of Dort. Yes. And, and it's also one of the essential requirements to be an elder is yeah. that your job is to yeah. shepherd the flock of God and to protect the flock of God from wolves within the church and from enemies outside the church. It's one of the basic job descriptions that pastors are given. 
And so that means that when a pastor is choosing not to take the time out to know what the gospel is, what the whole counsel of God is, if they choose not to do that, that means you're leaving your congregation open to every sort of danger that comes to them. Yes, and, and to uh, uh, show from Scripture that that is indeed the case, uh, Gabe, it says in Titus 1.9, in describing the qualifications for an elder, uh, he writes, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Amen. And so it's not... Being a teacher, being a pastor, being a, 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 a professor, theologian, it's not just about bringing positive teaching. It's also about uh, rebuking those and correcting those who are teaching things contrary to Scripture. Uh, it's not just a big group hug. I mean, there are those who are uh, in the hands of Satan trying to negotiate the, the gospel, mm-hmm. the, the Christian faith. And so, uh, so again, we see this happening all uh, throughout history. And uh, nowhere does it happen uh, in a more important way than in Dortrecht in the Netherlands in 1618 and 1619. Uh, Now, a big question that comes up is, okay, uh, why the Synod of Dort? Uh, What's the reason for the Synod of Dort? Well, it all surrounds uh, a man named uh, Jacob Arminius. Uh, Some people have heard of uh, Arminianism Mm -hmm. and that strain of thinking that uh, gives an unbiblical view of of free will and uh, a, well, we'll talk more about that in a minute in terms of his views, Uh, but it really goes back to to Jacob Arminius. Um, uh, Arminius, uh, his dates were, uh, he was born in 1559 and he lived to 1609, 1559 to 1609. And uh, as some of you uh, listeners will know something of uh, Dutch history, uh, there was what was called the 80 Years War with Spain. Mm. And so uh, uh, Arminius, uh, as a young boy, saw his father go off to war uh, against, against Spain, uh, the revolt against Spain, and he, he lost his life. Uh, but uh, some people supported him. He was a very bright young man, bright young student, and so uh, he went on to uh, uh, a new university in Leiden, and then, interestingly, went off and studied in uh, Geneva and, and Basel. And actually, uh, this was uh, after the time that Calvin was in Geneva, um, mm-hmm. uh, but but Theodore Beza was there, and so he had a strong uh, Calvinist uh, teaching, obviously, in Geneva. And then uh, returned uh, later to uh, pastor uh, a church in Amsterdam. And he did that for many years. And it was uh, during that time, of course, that he was admitted into the pastorate, into the strong Calvinistic Dutch church. And, uh, and, uh, and then he became a professor in the, in the university back in his alma mater at Leiden. And he taught there from 1603 to 1609. Uh, so, so he's there, he's teaching. One very interesting thing, a lot of people think that uh, Arminius got a bad rap, uh, that he was really uh, kind of a champion of truth and a hero, and we should, we should you know, respect him for his honesty and all this kind of stuff. Uh, interestingly, uh, Jacob Arminius, with all of his pastoral experience, with all his theological acumen, he never published a book. Uh, the things that he wrote, he uh, kept hidden. His teaching really was only in his classrooms. Mm-hmm. Students were being influenced by his teaching. 
Uh, of course, we know that he passed examinations uh, in, in Geneva, as well as when he went back to study in Amsterdam, or to preach and pastor in Amsterdam. Uh, he was um, admitted uh, into the university to teach students. And so at one point, we know uh, that Arminius's theology changed. Uh, it changed a lot. And, and so what happens? He dies in 1609, and a bunch of his students... Uh, basically take his theology and they, they write up a document called a remonstrance. And that remonstrance was, was written and sent to the government to basically say that they want safe haven with their theology. And, uh, and by the way, they were, they were Erastians as well, so they, they wanted more governmental um, uh, control of the church as well, whereas the, the, the Calvinistic Dutch churches at the time didn't want government interference mm -hmm. um, like they wanted for their own protection uh, for their, their false views. Uh, so, so, so basically in this remonstrance in 1610, they argue for uh, five points. Uh, a lot of people think that, uh, the, that Calvin wrote the five points of Calvinism. <laughs> Uh, no, um, the, the five points of Calvinism are only the result of responding to the five points of Arminianism. Mm -hmm. And so, um, uh, gentlemen, I don't know what kind of background you have with, uh, with uh, the, the Synod of Dort, uh, historically or theologically, but uh, I know you know the five points of Calvinism enough to know what the opposite of the five points of Calvinism <laughs> Uh, uh, is and so what? What uh, these five articles in this remonstrance that that are are seeking uh, to teach a certain kind of theology within the life of the Dutch Church to say this is acceptable? Uh, let's talk about those. What would be the five opposite uh, views of the five points of Calvinism? Um, <clears throat> well, the the first would be that that uh, sin is is not pervasive, it's not total, right? that, that, that mankind um, can somehow escape the bounds of, of sin uh, on his own, um, that we are not uh, totally depraved. Yeah, so what's left is an inherent ability to come to God. There's a free will. Yeah. Mm. Well, you have the idea we just mentioned, when you say that when a Reformed person says total depravity, the response often to that is, at least from the Armenian perspective, is while mankind has fallen, we have been freed by God's grace to believe. So you may have heard of a term called prevenient grace before, and that speaks of God's uh, grace acting, in a sense, before regeneration, but is given not to particular people, it's given to everyone that's in mind. And the reason that is true is because the other point that was strongly uh, defended by Arminius's followers was the concept that the atonement was for all. Now, for all uh, has a particular meaning for them. It means particularly that it was sufficient for all, and what we would say, uh, that's true, but they would also say it also applies as an efficient for all. So it isn't limited in scope. It's basically expanded to all of creation, oh, sorry, not of creation, all of mankind in that sense. And so... And can I just say that sometimes Calvinism is misrepresented in right. saying that the work of Christ is limited in that it is not efficient for all. Right. That somehow it's lacking. Right. 
-hmm. And what we say is no. And what and what the canons of Dort say, the canons, those articles written uh, at the synod, which became part of the confession of the Dutch Church, mm -hmm. is that it is efficient for all, but sufficient only right. for the elect. That's right. And so if you would hear a, a modern Armenian today, they would say something to this effect. God loves the world. He desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And therefore, God gave his son to die for the sins of the whole world. No, based in this case, not just all types of people, but for every single person. So that forgiveness and salvation is offered to all people. And therefore, since God has provided the benefits of salvation to all people by Christ's death, that means faith, therefore, is, uh, in their mind, something that happens before regeneration, before everything else happens, in effect. So, that atonement for all essentially means that election is not unconditional, it is conditioned. Right. And in that sense, uh, from the Armenian perspective, that means election is conditioned on the faith of that person. Foreseen faith. Foreseen right. faith. And so, if you so it's, it's so it's looking through the portals of yeah. time, yes, and choosing and person. choosing a person based on God foreseeing their exercising of yeah. faith out of their own free will. Yeah. So if you go to the Evangelical Armenians, uh, that's an organization, they would say this for conditional election. So quote. God has sovereignly decided to choose only those who have faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, for salvation and His eternal blessing. God has foreknown from eternity which individuals would believe in Christ. And therefore, they would say there are two different types of views of election that's based upon faith. So you have some who would hold that there is what they would call corporate election, which is the idea that election and salvation is primarily of the church as God's people, not individuals who are united to Christ. That's one view. And then another view would say that individual election means kind of what John just said. God looked through the corridors of time, saw who would have faith, and then elected based upon that. Now, the if you believe that you are freed by God's prevenient grace, if you believe that God's uh, the work of Christ on the cross, the atoning work of Christ is for all in that uh, sense we just stated, and if you believe that election is conditional, that means probably the article that most people know about Armenians is their view of security in Christ is very different. Right. So Reformed people have always spoken about the perseverance of the saints, or you can call it the preservation of the saints, either one. For uh, Arminians, the way that they describe um, security in Christ is as follows, and this is e from evangelicalarminians.org. Uh, <laughs> Since salvation comes, you spent through, a lot of time on that website, yeah, don't you? <laughs> Since, sal <laughs> Since salvation comes through faith in Christ, the security of our salvation continues by faith in Christ. Just as the Holy Spirit empowered us to believe in Christ. So he empowers us to continue believing in Christ. God protects our faith relationship with him from any outside force snatching us away from Christ or our faith. And he preserves us in salvation as long as we trust in Christ. And that's kind of the big picture. As long as you trust upon Christ, 
That means you are secure in Christ. So for our listener, mm-hmm. we need to make make it clear what's right. going on here. Right. Who who ultimately what ultimately is the foundation the, of our salvation? The foundation of salvation is the work of Christ right. because we are united to Christ. Right. But to them uh, what is it? But to them it's uh, it is the faith of the believer. Right. Whether it's very strong or very weak. And that means a discussion on Christian assurance is very different from the yes. Reformed right. than it would be for the it's hard classic to have Arminian. A doctrine of assurance. Correct. As quickly as you gain salvation, you could lose that mm-hmm. salvation. Exactly. And or uh, set it down for a time, walk away, and, and, and come back to the faith. Right, and I have so, I have spoken to uh, professing believers that uh, from one day to the next will tell you, I don't know if I'm a Christian. Yeah. And uh, what a low view of the work of Christ. Right. And right. This all strikes me as Gabe is reading this. It, it all strikes me as, as, as entirely um, man-centered in, in a way. Or, the, or the, at least the lens through which they are looking at their salvation is from our perspective. Instead of um, the, the Synod of Dort and, and, and um, those who follow in the Reformed tradition attempt to look at salvation through God's perspective. Right and how what he, these those things that he has declared about us and um, the the fact that Christ says uh, all all of my all, all of God's children have been given to me and not mm-hmm. one of them will 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 fall out of my hand right not one of them will fall away correct yes um, because he is the one who holds our faith secure amen and we we sing the song at Christ Church that he will hold me fast right? mm, the right. confession of that song is saying my faith is weak. I am prone to having a, as uh, Jose would say, our faithfulness can be like the morning dew here this yes. morning, gone later. Yeah. But it is Christ who is the foundation of salvation. It cannot be us because we could not pull ourselves up to merit God's favor. Yeah. And therefore, the foundation of all of it is the work of Christ. And that's why uh, we have heard all the time in preaching from Reformed churches that. The, the, in one sense, one of the fallacies of the modern era is that you are so introspective and look within yourself to see whether or not you are part of God's elect. Whereas the proper perspective is to say, look to Christ. He is the one who secures yes. the believer. He is the one who has died for the believer. And he is the one who sent the Spirit to unite us uh, to Christ. Mm-hmm. And so we look away from ourselves because that tells us that salvation is of the Lord, not of my faith. And so, yes, and this helps us make sense of all these Bible verses, which, which a lot of Christians are afraid of. Mm-hmm. Like Ephesians 1.4, that he chose us in Christ before the, the foundation, foundation of, of the, the world. world. That's before exactly. the foundation of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this idea that God looks... looks into the future and chooses those mm-hmm. who have chosen him or who have exercised faith is a nonsense because Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says to the believers there, you and you were dead in your trespasses and sins Amen. in which you formerly walked. Dead, not, not spiritual head cold, uh, not uh, on life support, but spiritually dead, that is incapable. Mm-hmm. And he repeats himself later on in Ephesians 2. Dead, and though you were dead in transgressions and sins, God saved you because of his great love for you. He saved you and he raised you up with Christ. So this is a, 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 a monergistic 
work of grace. And what we see, I think, in Dort is that when you challenge the doctrine of unconditional election, mm-hmm. uh, and you challenge doctrines like the depravity of, of man and, and uh, particular redemption, that Christ mm-hmm. died only for the elect, uh, that you, when you challenge things like um, irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints, then you're challenging the gospel. Mm-hmm. You're negotiating the free gospel of grace, that it's really God plus you mm-hmm. equals salvation. God plus your works, your work of faith, your, your strivings, moral strivings, that it's, it's, a, it's a formula that includes your work with Christ. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you do that, then you're, you're on shaky ground. Because guess what? Your work is a part of that ground. Uh, whereas we say we are saved, as the, as the, uh, uh, the Reformation slogans, we are saved by grace alone, uh, uh, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Mm-hmm. If you're a part of this process, then you deserve some glory. You have a reason to boast. But Paul says we have no reason to boast Amen. except for in our Lord Jesus Christ. So. So these, this, this synod uh, uh, is, is called uh, by uh, the Dutch government. They want to, 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 to hear from uh, the churches in 1618. They gather. There's a, about to be a civil war that's going to break out because of all the animosity. Uh, theology mattered <laughs> yes. back then. It doesn't matter to too many people today, even Christians, but mm-hmm. they recognize what was on the line. The gospel was on the mm-hmm. line. And, and so they, they, they gather together uh, with representatives from all the different provinces around uh, the Netherlands, uh, uh, many of them from, from North and South Holland, of course. And, uh, and then they had foreign delegates come as well, over, over 20, I think, uh, maybe 28 foreign delegates came from many different countries. Uh, and, uh, and, they, they, and they gathered together and they invited a contingent of remonstrants or Arminians to come as well to make their case. Uh, not really to make their case, but to, for them to sit in judgment on their, uh, uh, their, their beliefs and their writings. Uh, they were so belligerent about process the month that they were there that uh, finally... Uh, Bogerman, the uh, the president of the synod, said famously, "Go, go, go out of here!" and, and, and basically shoot them all out of the the room uh, there in Dortrecht. And uh, and then so so in this synod, uh, through all the del- del- deliberations, they wrote uh, five uh, heads of doctrine or or articles, uh, which are called the canons or rules of Dort. And uh, these are wonderful, wonderfully biblical, theological, and pastoral uh, articles, uh, a confession of faith whereby the churches said, this is what we believe about the gospel of God. And so they, they embraced uh, these, these, these canons. And at this synod also, they solidified their commitments, uh, re- recommitted themselves to the Belgic Confession, which mm-hmm. was written in 1561. And then also uh, later they embraced the Heidelberg Catechism as part of their confession. So this is what we call the three Three-five. forms of unity. Uh, the Belgic Confession, 1561. Uh, the uh, Heidelberg Catechism, 1563. And the uh, Canons of Dort, 1618, 19. Uh, and uh, but interestingly, that's not the only thing uh, that happened at uh, the synod. They actually uh, uh, endorsed and uh, supported the writing of a new Bible translation in Dutch, 
uh, at the, the Synod, and that took several years to do, and, um, and still is used in many of the Dutch churches today. I think it, it was finalized uh, uh, several years later. Um, and then, of course, they, they wrote up a new uh, kind of book of church order, a new church order uh, with uh, one of the things they, they decided to do was to be more focused on, uh, on the Lord's Day, to reinforce that. And there's a wonderful line that says that uh, do not uh, remove the, the evening service. Do not remove the evening service. Yeah. And even if it's just the pastor and his family that come, make sure that you have the evening service. It's a wonderful little line of, of how, how principled we should be about Lord's Day uh, observance. Well, John, you just recently got back from a, a conference on the Synod of Dort, right? Yeah, it, it was uh, called Dort 400, and it took place uh, in Heidelberg and Dortrecht. So we spent... Uh, two and a half days in Heidelberg hearing lectures and uh, eating a lot of good German food. <laughs> and, and then we got on a bus and drove about seven hours north to Dortrecht, Netherlands. And uh, it was marvelous. Um, the whole thing was marvelous. Uh, uh, the venue for the Heidelberg uh, portion of the conference uh, was up on the side of a hill in the Neckar River Valley overlooking the Heiliggeistkirche, the Holy Spirit mm. Church where Ursinus first taught through the Heidelberg Catechism in 1563. Wow. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we heard the church bells every day from that wonderful uh, uh, building. And then went to Dortrecht and had a, a Dutch pastor give us a walking tour of Dortrecht and mm -hmm. all the various uh, interesting sites connected to the Synod. Uh, the Synod actually met in a, an old armory and, uh, but it had its worship services at the Grote Kirche, the, the, the great church uh, uh, there. And um, they had their opening worship service and their closing worship service there again in November of 1618 and uh, May of 1619. We also saw a beautiful gate that had been built for the foreign delegates when they arrived uh, there on the boat. They got off the boat and right there is this beautiful gate and on it, it has the year 1618. And this was right. the... Uh, Dortrecht, if you'll read, uh, I'm actually just learning more about Dutch church history and Reformation history in the Netherlands, mm -hmm. and Dortrecht has always been a really uh, sh a big stronghold for uh, Calvinistic teaching and, mm -hmm. and preaching, and so it's not a surprise that they had this synod in Dortrecht. Okay. And also, I think you mentioned uh, before that you are co-authoring a book with uh, Sebastian Heck on this topic so can you discuss kind of what the book intends to be yeah uh, it's it's actually yeah we're co-editing uh mm -hmm. the book uh, i'm doing this with sebastian heck who is a, a pastor at uh, a reformed church in heidelberg and uh, uh the church uh, the, the book really is a collection of essays uh, dealing with the history and theology of dort uh, we have uh, many wonderful authors that have contributed to it, uh, Bob Godfrey, uh, Lyle Bierma, uh, Kevin Bidwell, John Fesco, uh, Mike Horton, who also was a speaker at the conference uh, in, uh, in Germany and the Netherlands, uh, Chris Gordon, who's a pastor out in uh, Escondido URC in California, mm -hmm. Sebastian, of course, Danny Hyde, who himself has a, a, a new book called Grace Worth Fighting For. Uh, on uh, the uh, synod. By the way, Bob Godfrey also has a wonderful new book on this uh, on this subject. 
and um, and that's called Saving the Reformation, published by Ligonier Ministries. Uh, and then Joel Beakey uh, has written for the book as well. I've I've written a, a chapter on uh, the sovereignty of God, evangelism, and Dort. And then Cornelis Venema has written a chapter on preaching and the doctrines of, of Dort. So, it, yeah, it's a it's a it's a really fine, I think, collection of essays uh, that gives some some background historically, also digs in a little bit theologically. Uh, to uh, help the reader to understand this this wonderful um, defense of the gospel, really. Yeah. I mean, Bob Godfrey makes the point that that really, if this synod had not happened, then then the the errors of Arminianism would have spread far and wide uh, mm-hmm. through a very influential Dutch church and elsewhere. And uh, and so this really helped to it didn't extinguish Arminianism. I mean, obviously we mm-hmm. see it all around us today. But um, but it really helped to to safeguard uh, right. the, what was done in the day in the days in the 16th century, uh, as as we know that that second Reformation uh, in the 17th century was very important to solidify and codify these uh, these doctrines of various confessions and teaching. So well, uh, I hope you've enjoyed our discussion on the Synod of Dort and the canons that uh, came from it. I'll add, there's one more book that was written by Kevin DeYoung, and it's called Grace Defined and Defended, What a 400-Year-Old Confession Teaches Us About Sin, Salvation, and the Sovereignty of God. So that's on the three forms of unity that was mentioned before. But we thank you for your time listening, and we hope you join us again on Between the Times.